Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. It's always good for about three reasons. Number one, you can clean your glasses. So you can see, you can cleanse your spiritual life so that you're prepared to study. You can turn your cell phone off so that it doesn't ding, bing, ring, or whatever else uh, in the middle of Bible class, and then orient your thinking to, or your your mind so that you can start uh, focusing on thinking uh, this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here this evening. We're grateful that we can come to you and bring our requests to you. We're grateful because we know that we our lives are in your hands and that even though we have free will, we have individual responsibility, nevertheless, we know that you oversee our lives and you care for us and you are concerned about us and the details and the situations and pressures and all the things that face us. Father, we're thankful for answered prayer. We're thankful for the way you work in the lives of, uh, of different people and answering different prayers. Father, we're especially uh, grateful today as we heard some good news about Robert Sonnet and his cancer that they does, had not spread beyond, uh, beyond his uh, uh, gallbladder. Or, and, Father, we also are thankful that, uh, we're also thankful that things are going well with little Josiah Ice, and we pray that uh, the doctors would be able to uh, solve the problem with his uh, with his heart. Thankful that he was able to get to the hospital in a timely manner, and we just pray that uh, things would go well there. And we pray that you'd really comfort his parents and that they would have a solid testimony there in the hospital. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you would encourage us with what we have in your word, that we can think through what we believe and why we believe it, and that we can be uh, strengthened in our in our souls, in our lives, in our faith, by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to back up a little bit. Last time we sort of hit that last paragraph, beginning in verse 20, uh, verse uh, 17, a little quickly. And so I want to pull that up a little bit, go back and just hit a couple of high points before we move on, as Paul is developing his argument. Now, remember what Paul's doing here. Romans is a great epistle and it because it teaches Christians what we believe, why we believe it. It is a sound, firm foundation, and he just walks us through the reason for justification, how we are justified, 
the results of justification, then it shifts into how a justified believer should live in Romans 6 through 8, and then it reflects upon justification in terms of Israel and the righteousness of God in terms of his relationship to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his promises to Israel, and how those will ultimately be fulfilled. And then there is a shift in the last part of Romans, beginning in Romans 12, where he talks about some of the uh, direct implications and applications of the principles covered in the first 11 chapters. Now, the reason I direct our attention a little bit towards what will come up in Romans 9, 10, and 11, because there he's going to come back to a topic he addresses and first raises here in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse, uh, specifically in verse 12, developed more starting in verse 17 and following in relation to uh, God's plan for Israel and the Jewish people. There are going to be questions. If you were Jewish and you're reading Romans, there might be some questions that are left unanswered as you go through this first discussion related to the Jewish people. And then he's going to uh, come back and answer that in a, a fuller sense when we get into Romans 9 to 11. In verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and boast in God. Now, at this point, he is shifting from talking in a broader sense about Gentiles and the Gentile reliance upon their own morality. He has a great logical structure here talking about the consequences of rejecting God as it is displayed first in people who uh, have a trend towards immoral degeneracy, and that is the end of Romans chapter 1. Then in Romans 2, 1 through 5, the focus is on those who have a trend towards moral degeneracy, the self-righteous, the person who believes that that he has it made, he's accomplished, he is good enough, he has accomplished enough, he is qualified on his own by his own behavior to uh, enter into uh, God's presence. Verses 6 through 9 uh, destroy that ultimately because Paul's assumption is the right nobody can be righteous. That will lead to be developed in his conclusion in the middle of chapter 3. And so though God will render to each according to his works, those who do not have the righteousness of Christ will not have works acceptable to God. And so the righteous will fail, just the, the self-righteous will fail, just at the judge, at the great white throne judgment, just as the uh, immoral degenerate uh, will also fail. Then in verse 12, he begins to shift towards those who uh, think that their righteousness comes from the law. And specifically, though, he doesn't spe- begin to talk about uh, the Jews until verse 17. He is, it's clearly implied that that's who he is uh, now referring to in verse verse uh, 12 when he brings up the idea of the law. The law was not given so that the Jews could be saved. And that's, that's misstated by a lot of Christians, and that's misunderstood by a lot of Jews, that somehow by observing the ritual, they could be saved. 
The ritual simply provided a way for ritual cleansing before God, and the rituals were designed to teach something about a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality had to do with the principle that no one could come into the presence of God unless their sins were dealt with and cleansed, not just ritually, but legally in terms of God's law and God's character. And they had to be truly dealt with, and those sins had to be paid for. And the law could not do it. In fact, the purpose of the law was to show that nobody could keep it that no one could keep the law. It would, it's impossible. Everybody fails, and therefore everybody is guilty. They cannot uh, achieve the righteousness of God on their own. Now, in verse 17, when Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God, he's going to introduce a number of uh, five different things that a Jew, Jew, the Jewish religion at the time of Christ at the time of the New Testament was emphasizing as uh, that which qualified them before the righteousness of God. And before we get into that, I want to address something that uh, I didn't mention earlier, but it came to mind this last week. I thought, well, I think we need to address this and define this. What does Paul mean when he uses the term Jew? What is a Jew. If you go through the New Testament, the term Jew or Eudios in the Greek is used set with several different meanings. And it's important to understand the different senses and the different meanings that we find there. First of all, there are several terms in the scripture that are used to refer to the Jewish people. They're referred to as Hebrews, they are referred to as Israelites. They are referred to as Eudias, as Jews. Those uh, three terms, the term, as we'll see in our development, each has a different, uh, a different emphasis. The second point is that the term Eudias in the Greek has its etymological derivation from the name of the of the founder, the progenitor of the tribe of Judah, of the, that, that name Judah, one of Jacob's uh, 12 sons, becomes identified because it's the largest tribe in the south. It becomes identified with the southern kingdom after the divided kingdom. In the un- period of the United Kingdom, the nation is referred to as Israel. When the nation divides the southern kingdom made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, as referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom made up of the other ten tribes is called Israel. After the uh, demise of the northern kingdom in 722, the term Israel is used a few times to refer to the southern kingdom, but it's still primarily referred to as Judah. And then when you get into the uh, New Testament, the Roman period, it's referred to by its Roman provincial name of Judea. The term Jew comes from that term for Judah and the first syllable of that word and is applied to them and was applied by the Jewish people to themselves as a as sort of a common term that was used as a reference to the descendants of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
However, today we have a number of different terms that derive from that that have to be distinguished. We have the term Jew, we have the term Jewish, we have the term Jewry, we have the term Judaic, and the term Judaism. Now, Judaism is really an interesting thing to try to get your hands on because what is going on, what the Pharisees and Sadducees believe, and they believe different things at the time of Christ in the first century, is not the same as modern Judaism. Pharisaism is sort of the granddaddy of modern Judaism, but it's not quite the same. Everything shifts with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The Sadducees, because they're really sort of the religious liberals, they don't believe in a future afterlife, they don't believe in resurrection, they don't believe in miracles. They're a lot like modern religious religious liberals. They really don't believe that God is involved in, in human affairs or human history. They're sort of the religious rationalists of, of that era. And so they don't have anything that enables them, their theology and their beliefs, to survive the destruction of the temple. But the Pharisees do. And it is the Pharisees who come together at what is called the Council of Yamnia in approximately A.D. 90, some 20 years after the destruction of the temple, to answer the question, how are we going to survive in terms of our religious beliefs in, a, in an era when we don't have an, an altar, an Ark of the Covenant, an altar on which to sacrifice or a temple to worship God? How are we going to go forward? And they restructure their beliefs so that the Jews in the diaspora can survive and go forward. And that is the groundwork that is laid for modern Judaism. So the, the, the survivors of the, of the Jewish rebellion are the Pharisees and that, their theology. So that becomes the, the core bedrock, so to speak, of the, uh, of, of modern, what is now modern Judaism. Of course, modern Judaism, or let's just say historic Orthodox Judaism, which dominated from the Council of Yamnia in AD 90 up to the mid to late 1700s, the 18th century. And it's at that point, the mid to late 18th, 18th century, when uh, you have your first breakout away from orthodoxy in, in Judaism, and that becomes known as Reformed, Ju- Reformed Judaism. Now, Reformed Judaism is equivalent to liberal Protestantism. It's a rejection of the idea that God could speak to man. It's a rejection of objective truth. They're completely influenced by Enlightenment rationalism. And so they reject historic traditions of the Jews. They reject orthodoxy. They, they go all the way to the left end, or, or let me put it this way, almost all the way to the left end of the spectrum. Now, there are some among the Jews in the uh, early 1800s who aren't happy with orthodoxy, and they, but they don't want to go out there and be as liberal as, the, as Reformed Judaism. So they come back about halfway, and they're called conservative. Now, they're not conservative in relation to orthodoxy. They're conservative in relation to Reformed. They're not as liberal as Reformed. That's why they're called conservative. Now, when you look at these terms like orthodox and and conservative and reform in terms of how they're used in an evangelical Protestant tradition, they have a completely different meaning. 
conservative Protestantism holds rigorously to the inspiration and infallibility of the text. When we use the term reformed in Christianity, we refer to those who follow the uh, thinking of Calvin and Zwingli and Bullinger, the so-called uh, French-Swiss and German-Swiss uh, Reformation, especially as it played itself out in terms of Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, and, and that. So, so that's still a fairly biblically orthodox tradition. So these terms are, have completely different nuances when applied to, uh, to, to Judaism. But in the first century... It is a conservative view of the text, but it is one that is somewhat similar to what we see in, um, in Roman Catholicism. It is the scripture plus tradition. And whenever you look at the authority of scripture and add something to it, whatever you add to it ultimately dominates and takes over and controls scripture. So when you say it's scripture plus mystic, some sort of mysticism, when it's scripture plus tradition, when it's scripture plus reason, whatever is plus takes over and ultimately changes scripture alone. That's why at the Protestant Reformation, one of the slogans was sola scriptura, meaning by the scripture alone. It's re- rejected the Roman Catholic view that the tradition of the of the fathers, the tradition of the early church fathers, gave an oral tradition that had equal authority to the written teaching of the scripture, and that the written teaching of the scripture, uh, that authority and revelation from God, continued through the papacy, through the uh, church fathers, so that their traditions could be used to reinterpret what what the scripture says. That's the same kind of thing that you had in Judaism. Uh, in, 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 at the time, at the first century, is that they had a tradition that had built up after the return from the uh, captivity in Babylon, and this tradition had the initial uh, acceptable goal of trying to preserve uh, and protect the people from going back into idolatry. But it immediately d- does what every human-based religion does. It forgets to trust in God, rejects his authority alone, and sets up human traditions and human guidelines as the ultimate authority. And that's what led to the development of Pharisaism. We're not really sure. Scholars debate just exactly when Pharisaism became Pharisaism, sometime around the uh, middle of the 2nd century B.C. to the middle of the 1st century B.C. Sometime in there you had the development of what is full-blown Phariseeism by the time you get to the New Testament. And they were the religious conservatives. We need to, and they were the religious moralists in, in Judaism. So when we think of this term, um, what does it mean to be a Jew? It's important to understand those distinctions because they do play a role in how that term Jew is used by different writers in the scripture. Now, the first point I stated was that there are several terms that are used to refer to the Jewish people as a whole in Scripture, Hebrews, uh, Jews, uh, Israelites. Second point was the term Judaios uh, for Jews or Judeans, uh, literally Judeans, and then it's translated Jews or those that were uh, settled in the province of Judea. 
and that the modern use of the term Jew, Jewish, Jew, Jewry, Judaic, Judaism, all have to be uh, have to be defined. My third point is that in the Bible, uh, the term Israel is becomes identified with the Northern Kingdom. First of all, the term Israel comes from God as a name or title that He gives to uh, Jacob at, at at Peniel because he wrestled with God and he is now going to be um, one who has who is a has has wrestled with God and is a prince with God and and usually in, in as we studied in Genesis several years ago when. Um, Jacob is referred to as Israel. The text is usually focusing on his more positive spiritual attributes, and when the text uses the term Jacob, it's usually referring to his function on the sin nature apart from God. So uh, the term Israel then came from uh, God's title and name for for Jacob, the father of the uh, 12 tribes. The term Judah applies to the southern kingdom and sticks with that after the Babylonian captivity. So the fourth point is that following the return from the Babylonian captivity, the term Judah or Judea referred to those inhabitants of Judea and was shortened to Jews. Israel was the more formal name. It's the preferred name to call them Israelites or Israel, but Jew was the common self-designation. This is how they referred himself. This was the usual everyday, uh, everyday term that you would run into. My fifth point is that each gospel writer uses the term a little bit differently. Mark and Luke don't really use it much other than in the title for Jesus that he was the king of the Jews. Other than that, they hardly use the title at all. Matthew uh, is more consistent with a rabbinic preference using the term Israel as the more formal name. And, you, and the use of the term Jews as a more common term for the people. Sixth point, in some cases the term Jews is also used for the Jewish people as a whole. But in other contexts, for example, the last, the last reference to it in, in Matthew, it's used to refer to the Jew, those Jew, only those Jewish people who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not simply a an ethnic or regional term. It also is used to refer to those of Israelite descent who have rejected Jesus. And it's used that way uh, in a number of different contexts. The last, as I said, the last reference in Matthew and several in uh, John. John is the one who uses it most. In my seventh, uh, let me see. Sixth point was, in some cases, the term Jews is used for the Jewish people who do not accept Jesus as Messiah, and thus that term Jew becomes associated with post-temple Judaism as it begins to make that transition because as it's used to refer to the Jews who rejected Jesus, that term then takes begins to put down roots in the second century in Christian writers. So that term becomes the term that defines uh, second temp- our, our post-temple Judaism. Seventh point, the term the Jews is also used to refer to the religious leadership of the Jewish people who are steadfastly committed to the Pharisaical traditions of the people. Paul talks about himself as, the, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And there he's talking about his, the sense of, of more ethnic. 
But in other places, the term Jew is used, and as it is in this passage, and it's really, and, and Paul, I mean, excuse me, John uses it that way a number of times, and it refers to uh, the, the leadership of the people who are committed to the traditions of the people, and it's not used in an ethnic sense at all. And so there's no anti-Semitic, uh, there's no racist overtone to uh, the use of The writers of Scripture are all Jewish. When John talks about the Jews did this and the Jews did that and Jesus is arguing with the Jews, he's talking about the leadership, uh, the religious leadership of the Jewish people. My eighth point is that Paul uses the term to refer to, sometimes to the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For example, back in uh, the first chapter of Romans and many other places, he refers to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that usage, he's talking about the Jewish people as an ethnic, using it as an ethnic term. But in other places, he uses it simply to refer to those who hold to the religious viewpoint of those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah by emphasizing the traditions of, of the of the uh, Pharisees as the means to salvation and acceptance with God. And that's how he begins to use this term here in, um, uh, uh, later on in 2.17, but I th- uh, and, and from 2.17 on, when he says, indeed, you are called a Jew, he defines that as those who have these five characteristics that he's going to raise in the sub- subsequent verses. It's, he defines them in context as those who are resting, relaxing in the law as the means of their relationship and the basis of their relationship with God. They are boasting in God as giving them, the Jewish people, a special relationship. Uh, they claim to be have exclusive knowledge of his will. Uh, they approve the things that are excellent because, and this is from their perspective, because they've been instructed, instructed out of the law. All of this is going to add up to their boasting. They, 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 <clears throat> a couple of other times in this section, Paul is going to refer to them as, as boasting in God, their pride in who they are. Now, that's an important word to understand here, this concept of boasting and pride, because it relates to what the Old Testament refers to as their hard-heartedness or being stiff-necked. They are arrogant. They are proud. They are putting the emphasis on who they are and their own accomplishments. The fact that they are born physically as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they think gets them salvation. It gets them many privileges, as Paul will elucidate in this section and in the first part of chapter 3, but None of that is salvation. It doesn't make them righteous before God. They have special a special position because they're the ones who received revelation. They have the promises of God. They have the covenants of God. But that doesn't get them in, into heaven. That's not that doesn't bring them uh, justification. <clears throat> in this section, in in two seventeen and following, we see. Paul, Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, know his will, approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. I pointed that out last time that this is what was expected of the Jewish people. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is one of the great chapters of the Old Testament, foundational chapters uh, in the Old Testament, Moses says to the Jewish people, 
and gives them these commands to be obedient and diligent in their obedience to the law. He says, be careful to observe them. Now, he never says that they're to observe the law so that they can get into heaven. They're to observe the law so that they can fulfill God's plan for them as a nation and so that they can be blessed by God in the land and enjoy the blessings of the land as God promised. God's not going to allow them to stay in the land and receive blessing if they're disobedient. So Moses says, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of who? In the sight of the nations, in the sight of the Gentiles. You're a witness, in other words, uh, Moses is saying that the the nation is to be a light set on a hill, to use the phrase that the uh, 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 Puritans picked up on when they came to the U.S. and intended to do the same kind of thing. Um, Moses said that this would be in the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes, and if the Jews or the Israelites at this point in history, if they're obedient to the law, God will bless them and all the other nations will look at them and just be in awe of the freedom that they had, the liberty that they had, and the prosperity that they had. And when they looked at the law, they would, they could only comment, surely this is a wise and understanding people. They were to be a testimony, a light to the nations. In Deuteronomy 4 7, they would say, continuing what the Gentiles would say, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So Moses is emphasizing the fact that that this is their role, this is their purpose, is to show how close God is to the nation. But the purpose of the law isn't soteriological. Now, as we go forward into this section, just hitting a couple of the other high points, <clears throat> he lays this out, and then starting in verse 21, he enters. He, he starts driving home a set of rhetorical questions. There are five rhetorical questions that he introduces that are designed to drive his point home. He's not asking these questions to get an answer. He's driving this each question, uh, asking each question in order to make a point. And these begin in verse verse 21. He says, "You who teach another, do you teach? Your, do you not teach yourself?" No, you're not teaching yourself. You're really ignorant of the meaning of Scripture. Each of these is, and that's the expected and implied answer. Uh, second, he says, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Implication, yes, you do steal. You're guilty. Third, he says, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And the expected answer is Yes, you do. And I pointed out last time that there's a passage in the Talmud that indicates that adultery was a major problem in first century, uh, first century Judaism. That this was a, um, uh, um, it had become extremely popular. It's always been popular to some degree, but it had become extremely popular and was seen by the rabbis as a major problem. 
And so uh, it was um, uh, Paul's pointing out their violation of this. uh, Verse 4, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Yes, you do. And the idea there was that they robbed the temple in that they robbed the temple of the glory of God because they substituted human works for divine dependence. And then fifth, he says, you who make your boast in the law. See, there we have that word again. They're, they're boasting. They're proud in their accomplishments, their position, their achievements. And he says, then, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And they, they did in a lot of different subtle ways that were set up. So I want you to hold your place here, and I want to go to one as just to show you an example. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, our second gospel, Matthew, Mark chapter 7. Now, the context of Mark 10 to 13 is a context of conflict over authority with the Pharisees. And starting in verse 6, let's just pick up a little bit of the context. He says, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Now, let's let, a lot of times people don't understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite isn't someone who believes one thing and does something else. Because if that's true, then we're all hypocrites in that sense. Because it, we all violate our norms and standards at all kinds of different times. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you have a uh, uh, just an external standard that you uh, don't ever apply internally, and that that's your that is your official position, so to speak. That's what hypocrisy is. So hypocrisy is not someone who, and often you'll hear people say that. Well, I know them. They're they're a Christian, but look at them. They they do this and they do that, and they you know whatever sin they want to name. You know they gossip or whatever. That's not that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is is having simply and scripturally is having an external, having a religious position and a claim to a relationship with God based on simply external ritual where there's no internal reality or internal relationship with God. That's the biblical definition of a hypocrite. And this is seen in the uh, citation here uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah 29:13, quoted here in verses 6 and 7. This people's honors me with their lips. See, it's just lip doing lip service. It's not just saying... Well, I believe this because most of us believe certain things that we do at times are wrong. We never justify it. We just violate our own norms and standards. But this is where it's just purely going to a worship service and reading through the Scripture without ever thinking about what it means or thinking, yes, I really believe that. Uh, this is uh, just going through the motions. People honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, you see, under this definition of hypocrisy, you can think of, and I'll let you think of them. I'm not going to stand up here and identify them all. But you can think of numerous 
Christian denominations that fall under the category of hypocrisy. Because what they teach as commandments is the tradition of men, they're no longer teaching Scripture. They're no longer teaching the Word of God as the ultimate authority. They have fallen into the same authority trap that the Pharisees fell into, and that is they're putting their authority on human tradition, not the Word of God. And so Jesus then applies this to the Pharisees in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. See, Jesus sets this up. It's either the word of God or tradition. It's not both. And you see, as I pointed out earlier, this became the uh, established doctrine, authority doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, that the tradition of the church fathers had equal authority. It was a living tradition. It's not unlike, it's not dissimilar from the current argument that we have about the uh, interpretation of the Constitution, a living document versus original intent. They looked at the Scripture as a living, ongoing revelation that continued beyond the close of the canon and on into the uh, period of the early church and the church fathers and the popes and their various interpretations. And where that led in Roman Catholicism is repeating itself today in evangelicalism. And I've said this for, for 40 years, 43 years, ever since I took a course on the Mishnah when I was a, uh, at Dallas Seminary. When you read the Mishnah, they'll raise a question. What should we do in such and such a situation? And then they'll say, well, Rabbi Akiva says this, and Rabbi Hillel says this, and Shammai says this. And they, the debate is among the authorities on the Torah. They never go to the Torah. They're just looking at the various authorities. You had the same thing developed with This is one of Satan's great tools for destroying uh, Christianity or truth is because he attacks at the root of authority. And so in the early church, it developed into the, into the medieval theology. You read Aquinas, you read Bonaventure, you read you know, any of the uh, medieval theologians, and that's what they do. They, 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 re, they repeat what different early church fathers said. Irenaeus said this. Tertullian said this. So-and-so said this. And it's a debate over what different theologians said as opposed to what the Scripture said. And so you became you become a doctor of the law in the medieval church, and that means that you know what all of the theologians say about the Bible, but it doesn't mean you've ever read the Bible. Now just fast forward that to the end of the 20th century, and modern evangelical scholarship is now doing the exact same thing. If you go to any number of the so-called conservative theological seminaries, The definition of scholarship today is that you know what everybody, all the positions are about a passage of Scripture, all the different viewpoints, and who holds all the different viewpoints, but it doesn't mean that you really get into the text. And I've heard stories of men who have come out of uh, seminaries that we're familiar with, and they have stood in the pulpit, and they'll go through Genesis 1 and outline five different views on Genesis 1, and never come to a conclusion as to which is scriptural, what the text actually means. They can tell you what all the views are, 
But they don't, they don't know how to reach a conclusion that this is what the text says. And that's scholarship today. And I know of, I know of uh, several people, myself included, who have written articles for some theological journals. And the only thing we can, reason we can figure out that those articles were rejected was because they didn't follow this pattern of what's accepted as modern, modern scholarship. And I've had professors at some of these schools in just recent years state that people like Chafer and Walvert and Ryrie weren't scholars. What we have today are scholars, but those men weren't scholars. See, back in, back 30 or 40, 50 years ago, a, a biblical scholar was somebody who knew the text. It wasn't somebody who knew what everybody else said about the text. So evangelicalism has slipped into this same thing, it, and, and it's easy for us to do. And I hear people in the pew do this. Some of you done this. Well, a pastor so-and-so said this, and then, well, this other pastor, pastor so-and-so, I heard him say this, and this pastor over here says that. In other words, going to the Scripture and learning what the Scripture says and trying to understand the arguments for each view and going to the text as a final authority, it's what this pastor said or what that pastor said or what this other pastor said. We, we want to put our, our emphasis on the man and what one man or another man said rather than thinking through what they've said and why they said it. Because that takes a lot of mental sweat and effort and energy to think through Okay, why did he say that? What were his reasons? And then being able to think it through biblically. What does the scripture say? So we always run into this, this challenge on authority. So what happened in the first century is in Mark chapter 7, for example, Jesus uses this illustration. Moses gives the commandment in the ten words, the ten commandments, honor your father and your mother. And also later in the Torah, there is a penalty on anyone who is a, re- a rebel against their parents. And he quotes from that also, he who curses father or mother, uh, Jesus said, uh, let him, uh, let him be put to death. And so there is this scripture says on the one hand, there is a positive command, uh, to honor mother and father. And on the other hand, there is a, Negative penalty for those who don't, that, that, that's capital punishment. You think that we have hue and cry today when we, after, what, 23 years in the recent case of this uh, Mexican national who'd come up here when he was young, was just executed this last week here in the state of Texas, uh, much to the chagrin of the past two uh, uh, presidential administrations because it might offend our neighbor to the south. Uh, what if we had were taking our adolescents every time they mouthed off and uh, reviled their parents, and we took them out to the public square and stoned them, which is what the Mosaic Law said to do. It certainly shuts down the trend towards uh, rebelliousness. So if you want references for that, the the reference on the uh, stoning of rebellious adolescents is in Exodus 21.17. So... Here you have this, Jesus cites from these two, uh, two mandates to point out that the scripture is extremely serious about the command to honor and respect your parents and to take care of them as they get older. 
Now, different people have to take care of their parents in different ways. Ideally, it's wonderful if you're in a situation where you can bring an elderly parent into your home, but not everybody can do that. They don't have the physical plant where they, a home where they can make room for them. They don't have the financial, necessarily the financial resources, uh, to take, to take care of a parent or other things. That's the ideal. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, too often we just leave people out there in, in nursing homes. Uh, sometimes that's done because, and it's just done as a manner, matter of irresponsibility, but not everybody does. Sometimes people just don't have the option to go any other way just because of their circumstances. So, uh, we have to be careful in how we, uh, evaluate some of those things. In, in, uh, Verse 11, Jesus says, but you say, notice how Jesus goes back and forth, but Moses said, in other words, this is what God said, but you say the contrast between the scripture and tradition. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God. Now, this, this was loopholes. You think we've got some loopholes in the IRS code. We, they had, the, the Pharisees developed all kinds of great little loopholes in the way they interpreted the law. If, let's say you have money and your parents are really going to suck up a lot of that money if you have to take care of their medical bills. So you could say, well, I've promised this, my estate to the church. So I really can't help them. So we're just going to have to put them on Medicaid and med- whatever, and and they're going to go into a nursing home and let the state take care of them. So you you can feel good about yourself because you're giving all your money to the church. And that was the idea here. They would give they would dedicate all their money to God. They would put it in that classification, like putting it off into a trust fund or something. And then, well, you know, I really can't touch that money to help my parents. So it gave them an out and communicate the idea that since they were giving this money to a to the cause of the synagogue, that this was more important, a higher goal, a higher good than taking care of the parents. So Jesus says, because you say, say this, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. You basically undercut the law. And the result is, verse 13, making the word of God of no effect, through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. And because of this, the word of God is really being blasphemed because people think that your tradition is what the Bible says. It's not, but that's what they think because your claim is that this is biblical. Then when they see people do this, then God is blasphemed. How many times do you see this happen with Christians? Somebody says, well, you know, so-and-so does that, and he claims to be a Christian, and that's Christianity. And you watch, you turn on, the great example is you turn on the televangelists, and they come across as, for many people who don't know any different, that that is Christianity. And they see a level of, ju- uh, of, of just, just ostentatiousness and shallowness and superficiality, and they think that is Christianity. And, and, and they, it, it, they know that, that, that's wrong. And they're correct in that, that there's a sense in which that is, that is wrong. And so they say, well, those Christians, they're just, they're just, you know, emotional idiots. They're just shallow and superficial. I could never 
become a Christian. So God ends up being blasphemed because somebody is misrepresenting human tradition as true biblical Christianity. And so that's Paul's conclusion in Romans uh, 2.24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of your disobedience. And he says, as it is written, because he's drawing this from Isaiah 52.5. Little that Paul says in these chapters is new. He's basing this on what is said in the Hebrew Scriptures. He's not inventing theology. So as Isaiah 52.5 reads, Now therefore what I have... What I have here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my, my name is blasphemed continually every day. The point is because of the disobedience in Israel and Judah at the time that Isaiah wrote, that he, they, Isaiah was warning that eventually they would be taken away in judgment. And so God is saying here, my people are not being taken away for nothing. They're being taken away because in their disobedience, they cause my name to be blasphemed every day. So Paul takes that verse and he pulls it over uh, into his argument here, showing that because of this uh, shallow, superficial approach to the Mosaic law, and their failure to tr- truly apply it in terms of its divine intent, God's name is being blasphemed every day. Now, as we go forward, he's going to give an explanation of this. This is indicated by verse 25 with the <coughs> word for. He's, now he's going to explain this. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So he begins with this, this phrase or this word for, which always introduces, it's the Greek word gar, always introduces an explanation. Then it has this untranslated word called, that is, that it's the Greek word men. And it, it's probably they thought that they were translating with this word indeed. Men has a couple of functions. One is it indicates that there's something else coming. So it creates a level of expectation in the reader. And it's the idea that on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. And so when as soon as you hear that first on the one hand, what are you expecting? On the other hand, you're waiting for the other hand to come. So when this starts, Paul says, for circumcision is profitable if you keep the law. Now, that's a third-class condition in the Greek, which means maybe you do, maybe you don't. But usually a third-class condition is a little weighted more towards the positive. You probably will. So uh, it could be either A or B, but it's probably you will do this if you keep the law. So he's assuming they probably will keep the law. It's not as strong as a first-class condition, which would assume that you keep the law, but it's it's recognizing that that's of the two options, that's the more likely. And and he says circumcision is is definitely profitable. There's a value to it. And then, but then he says, but if 
you are a breaker of the law, and it doesn't repeat the if, so it's still a third-class condition. If you are a breaker of the law, assuming that to be true, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Literally, he says, your circumcision has become a foreskin. So let's break this down a little bit. What, what's those, why is he talking about circumcision? He's talking about circumcision because in Pharisaic Judaism, circumcision as a ritual had been identified as that which was the sine qua non, which is a Latin phrase for without which nothing, the sine qua non for getting into heaven. If you weren't circumcised, you couldn't get into heaven. No circumcised person, in fact, one rabbi wrote that knows no one who is circumcised is in Gehenna. So if you just go through the external ritual, you're okay. It's not any different from people who say if you just get baptized, you'll make it into heaven. That it's just that external rite, that external ritual that gets you into heaven. And there are all kinds of abuses of that down through history. In fact, it was thought in the early church that it was the physical washing of water that removed sin. So you had people like Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, who would not get baptized until he thought he was very close to death because the sins that came after baptism, you, you got punished for those. So let's put the baptism off to the very, very last possible minute. That eventually led within Roman Catholicism to the doctrine of extreme unction, which is where they administer the last rites. And they come in, they anoint you with oil so that there's that final cleansing from sin so that when you get into heaven, you're, uh, you won't have so much to have to pay for. It's been washed away by, by the ritual. It's all external. There's no internal reality or relationship with God whatsoever. This is the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. Number one, Christianity always, always emphasizes the fact that man is incapable of doing anything to make himself acceptable to God. All other religions believe that man can do something to make himself acceptable to God. Why? Because the Bible believes in what we refer to as total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be, except I know some of you. You're almost as bad as you could be. It means that every aspect of our being has been tainted, corrupted by sin. Our emotions, our reasoning, our intellect, our physical health, our physical bodies, everything is tainted by sin. And so we're under condemnation. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. But all the other world religions have a higher view of man. They think, oh, you're you, you may have done some bad things, but you're basically good. And because you're basically good, you can do some things to make up for it. Now, I want you to think about this. This is just simple, common sense, which means nobody understands it because common sense is so uncommon today. You are, you are driving. Some of you have been driving for 20 years. Others of you have been driving for 40 years. Others of you, I don't know if I can count that high. I started driving when I was 14. Had my first wreck when I was 15, second wreck when I was 15. We won't go any further. Um, but let's say you have a perfect driving record. You've 
never gotten a ticket for anything. You've never got caught speeding. I know you did, but you never got caught. You never got caught running a red light. You have a perfect driving record, and now you are 90 years old, and you get a ticket for running a red light. And you go to the judge, and you say, Judge, I don't want to pay this $200 or $300 fine for running a red light. I have a perfect record. Let's look at all those Hundreds of thousands of times I stopped at stop signs and I stopped at traffic lights and I did everything right. Don't you think that all of that obedience on one side of the scale balances out this one little infraction? And the judge is going to say, $300, pay the bailiff or whoever. That's it. You're guilty. Because the issue isn't what you did right. It's things you did wrong. Just imagine if the defense attorney for Casey Anthony last week, had come out and said, you know, she really hasn't killed any other children. And she had the opportunity to kill lots of other children, but she didn't kill any other children. She did kill this one, and it was her own, and that was bad. But just think, if you balance that out with all the time she could have but didn't, she's really innocent. That's absurd. But how many people are going to stand up before God and say, God, let's balance things out here. See, I did all these good things. I was moral. I could have been immoral. I told the truth. I could have lied. You know, I I, I didn't steal, and, and I easily could have. I actually paid all of my taxes and didn't take all the deductions I could have just in case. So I overpaid all my taxes all those years. I, I never cheated the government. Now, don't you think that all of those good things balance one side of the ledger and the fact that, well, I've got these, these few little peccadillos over here, these few little flaws over here. That just balances things out and you ought to let me into heaven. No. Nobody would do, God would be the stupidest, silliest, shallowest judge that we ever, that, that ever was if if he did that. And yet that's how people think of God. They think God is nothing more than this silly, irrational, emotional judge up there who's somehow going to balance out their bad with the good. There's not a judge in history that we want to do that, but we want God to do that. And that reveals something. It reveals the fact that we know we can't do it on our own, but we don't want to admit it. We have to have a mediator. That's what all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. There has to be a payment for sin because our good deeds, we know they're just not good enough. But what happened, so, so what happened in the development of Phariseeism is the focus is on circumcision. Circumcision was a right. It was in, it was being practiced before Abraham was called by God, but God told Abraham that he needed to be circumcised as a sign of the, the covenant. So it's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it was a sign, that it, it was a ritual that had a spiritual teaching point. And the spiritual teaching point was that in terms of justification, our relationship to God, there is a severing of our relationship with the flesh. And so the severing of the flesh of the foreskin is a picture of what Paul develops in Romans chapter 6, that when we are saved, we are no longer under bondage to the sin nature. We're set free. And that's the spiritual implication, and that's the reality. 
It's, the ritual doesn't get it and, and, and has no meaning unless there is a spiritual reality, which is what Paul is indicating here when he says circumcision is of some value if you keep the law. The point is, and then he says, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become a foreskin. So what really matters here is keeping the law, not circumcision. That's just the physical right. Now, this was a problem in the Old Testament. Paul gets all of this straight out of the Old Testament. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute. Leviticus 26.41. This is in a passage where it's at the end of the fifth cycle of discipline. And God says to the Jewish people who, after the fifth cycle of discipline, are outside the land and under divine discipline scattered throughout the world, he says, when you recognize that you have also <coughs> walked... Um, uh, and God says, and, and I, I have also have walked contrary to them, that is contrary to the disobedient Jewish people. And I have brought them into the land of their enemies when he scattered them as they are now in the diaspora. And have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. Now, wait a minute. I thought circumcision was a physical thing. No, it, it represents a spiritual reality, something that has to do with the soul. Something is removed, and it's related here to humility and accepting guilt, recognizing personal sin. There's a command in Deuteronomy 10.16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, that's your soul, and be stiff-necked no longer. Now, when God commands the Jews to be circumcised, he recognizes that every one of them needs this. Now, modern Judaism says there's no such thing as total depravity. Well, then you've got to throw out Deuteronomy 10.16 because when there's a command to the, to the whole nation that everybody needs to have their heart circumcised, it recognizes that sin is a problem everybody has and it separates you from God. And if you don't deal with it, then you've got a problem. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, before the kingdom comes, before God establishes the kingdom and restores the Jews to the land of Israel, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is the new covenant. I won't go through this, but just look at this new covenant passage in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. And then Jeremiah says this same thing in relation to his uh, announcement of judgment. He said, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising lo- loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, wherein these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, these days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. And really it's I will punish all who are circumcised uncircumcision. That's what the Hebrew says. It's not with the circumcised. It's circumcised, uncircumcision. It's what Paul says right here. It's you may be physically circumcised, but you're not spiritually circumcised, and so that means there's no justification. Now, I'll come back, review this again next time, and get into the spiritual implications of circumcision in the New Testament in Galatians and Colossians. It comes up, so we'll hit that when we come back next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We're reminded that there's nothing we can do uh, to make ourselves acceptable to you. It is something you do. 
When we trust in Jesus, you circumcise us spiritually. There is that removal of the authority of the sin nature, not the removal of the sin nature, but the removal of the the authority, uh, so that we are set apart to you positionally, and we are to live for you experientially, and that only comes as we study your word and walk with your spirit. Challenge us with what we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.